Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today we have guests Joseph Sabo and Nate Patterson on the line. And today we are going to be talking about Michael Heiser and the Divine Council. Nate, if you would like to just uh, kind of give an overview of who Dr. Michael Heiser is and kind of talk about what his body of work entails. Yeah, Michael Heiser is a uh, Hebrew scholar specifically studying the ancient Semitic languages like Ugaritic, Aramaic, and that body of work. He primarily deals with ancient Near Eastern subjects that have recently come to light within the past about 100 years with the cuneiform material that we have uh, unearthed through archaeology. And so he uses that as a means of interpreting, better understanding the Old Testament in light of what the actual biblical authors were thinking about pertaining to the Old Testament and various other subjects. So Dr. Michael Heiser, he's an expert on the ancient Near East, and he tries to understand the Bible in light of what we know about other cultures in the same time period. And one of the books that he wrote is uh, The Unseen Realm, which is a good book. I have the book. I also have his previous book, I Dare You Not to Bore Me with the Bible, and that's pretty cheap. That's on Kindle. It's like three bucks. And uh, that has a lot of the same ideas in it as well. But his big thing is this divine council. And this ancient Near East idea is that God sits in a council, in a judgment room, and he surrounds himself with lesser dignitaries, angelic creatures, people in his courtroom that give him advice, and they work for him, and they do stuff for him, they take orders from him, and uh, it's just a courtroom scene. And this, he describes, is also found in the text of the Old Testament, especially. Right, so the base of his view, I suppose we could say, would come from the passage in Psalm 82. Um, That would be the divine counsel, sort of in a nutshell. Yeah, we'll pull that up. And Psalm 82, if anyone's not familiar with that, that is uh, usually called like an ascension psalm. And what we have going on there is uh, God's in this divine council, and there's all these other gods there. The the term gods is used, uh, the sons of gods, the divine council, and God reclaims the right to rule from these authorities who have been deficient, they've been delinquent, they have uh, shirked their duties to justice, and God reclaims this. Right, so Psalm 82, reading from the ESV, uh, verses 1 and 2 says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and and show partiality to the wicked? So that is sort of the basis of Psalm 82, where we have God, uh, Yahweh, judging members of his divine council. Now, other translations don't reflect this reading as well as the ESV does. I think part of that is probably because the ESV takes into account the DSS, which is the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, If you were to read this from, say, the Masoretic text, you would get um, a different translation. And a lot of scholars and, I guess, lay people, um, when they read this, they would take sort of the popular position would be that God, Yahweh, is not judging divine members of his council, but that he's judging, you know, human Jewish rulers um, that were entrusted with, you know, the law and being a light to the nations and whatnot. Um, That kind of falls apart, though, down in verse 6. It says, I said, you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. 
Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. So here we have the culmination of Yahweh um, rendering judgment against those in the divine council that were entrusted with, in Heiser's view, guiding the nations and ruling over them. Divine geography comes into play here, wherein Yahweh is ruler over the entire earth, but he designates and delegates authority to other spiritual beings, say, to guard over the nation of Israel or to watch over, you know, pagan nations. And part of Heiser's view would be that, you know, these nations that worship Baal and whatnot, you know, they worship actual deities that were entrusted with watching over them and guarding them and such. And I'd just like to kind of point out that the popular view that this is referring to, like the elite of Israel, it just does not make sense. Because look at the contrast in verse 6. He says, you are gods. And what does he say? Nevertheless, like men, so he's saying, you know, there's another class of people. They're men. And guess what? You're like these guys. You will die like them. And then not only men, but and fall like any prince. And so who are these princes? The princes are the elite human beings. It's, it, he's not trying to address the elite of Israel. He's saying to these Elohim, these uh, angelic creatures, you're going to die like men. You're going to die like princes. You're going to die. And just to take a little note from the Dictionary of Deities and Demons in the Bible, under the entry, Sons of God, the first section reads thus, in several passages in the Old Testament, a group of heavenly beings other than Yahweh is referred to by the expressions Bene Elion, which is children of Elion, which references Psalm 82, verse 6, and Bene Elim, which references Psalm 29, 1, 89, 7, or Bene Ha Elohim, which is in Genesis 6, 2 and 4, Job 1, verses 6, Job 2, mm -hmm. verse 1, 38, 7, and originally, Deuteronomy 32, 8, which is children of God or divine beings. And the concept appears without the terminology in other few Greek passages, other few passages in the Old Testament. So specifically, the word sons of God comes from the gods is Elohim. And Elohim, as Heiser um, argues, is not qualitative attributes. It is a place of residency of what an Elohim is. And there are other individuals or beings that are called Elohim in the Old Testament, such as Samuel and the witch of Endor scene in the book of Samuel, in which Saul goes there to have counsel with Samuel by going to the witch of Endor, and she says she sees uh, a son of God, Elohim, arising up, which is identified with Samuel specifically. Yeah, and that's very critical because sometimes people say Elohim, it just refers to Yahweh, God. Well, not always. And you got these specific instances. And in the Samuel case, in the Samuel being called Elohim, it refers to a deceased human being. Yeah, Heiser has a really good video on this. Um, it's actually on YouTube, and it's called The Intro to the Divine Council. And he spends about 25, 30 minutes just fleshing out this, what Nathan just talked about, how the term Elohim is a description of residence. So for like a spiritual being, whereas I think a lot of Christians would probably take from more of the Mormon interpretation where they call Elohim is the proper name for what we as Christians would refer to as God. That Just being that in, in general, calling God Elohim is just an absurdity. Being that the Mormons believe that's his only name, when you understand the word Elohim is a plural Hebrew term, that 
is connotated toward disembodied spirits or any other like supernatural being, like angels, even demons are considered Elohim. Also, just they don't get the name demon until the New Testament. So let's talk about kind of what this view entails. So God is in a spiritual courtroom, and uh, he's surrounded by underlings, by advisors, by all, all different sorts of divine creatures. And we see a scene, and it's in 1 Kings 22, where God actually queries them for information. He says, uh, you know, I want this King Ahab guy. I want him dead. And uh, how are we going to do that? And the angels, they take turns talking in front of God, offering solutions to kill King Ahab. And, and this, is, this is a very open theistic concept, that God is crowdsourcing ideas in order to kill someone. <laughs> it's just, it, it, try, to, try to, you know, you can't, I've talked to Calvinists, and I give them the, the, this verse, and I say, just don't even give me your interpretation. Just dis- describe in sequence the events that happen in this passage. We could talk about what it means later. Uh, we could talk about what you would like to take from this text or what you think is, uh, you know, not literal. But just tell me the events that happens in First Kings 22. And they won't do it. They won't do it. Just list the events that are described in order. Yeah, I think one of the things that's sort of frustrating for me personally as an open theist, and also I really dig on my Kaiser stuff in Divine Council. I mean, I'm pretty much sold out to that. But uh, hearing him talk about this scene in particular, he'll he'll go the, the normal, I guess you could say, open theist route and accept that what we have here is genuine crowdsourcing, genuine uh, brainstorming. But where he draws the line, he still holds on to exhaustive definite foreknowledge. So I've heard him say on a podcast before that... God allowed these beings to offer suggestions, but that he knew who was going to pick what and, you know, what he was going to end up going with, which, again, destroys the relationality of the text in this particular instance and reduces all of God's interactions, even with his own counsel, into sort of, I don't even know how to describe that. Yeah, how do people act in the Bible? When we see people approaching God and interacting with God, it's, it's always with this uh, almost naive sense that their actions affect God, that what they are interacting with God is a legitimate interaction on equal levels, not necessarily equal power levels, but equal level, levels for, for interaction, not that God's settled everything divinely and we have to work through his secretive plan. It, it's, it's working. It's saying Moses says, okay, God, I know you want to make a new nation through me, but how about this? And, and and get this. So Moses, he's part of this divine council. You got Abraham part of this divine council, and their actions, their advice sways God. So in Exodus 32, Moses advises God not to destroy his people, and he gives reasons. He gives tiered reasons, and God eventually accepts his reasoning. So Moses is acting as an advisor as Abraham did in Genesis 18. Yeah, and I think it, I, it's really interesting when it comes to the Divine Council also that I think people are unaware of is that at the end, at the eschaton, at the resurrection, God's people, the people that have faith in Christ, actually will become members of that Divine Council. That's what the resurrection body is all about. When you, when you look back to Abraham and God speaking to him about 
its children as as the grains of the sand and the stars in the sky. He's not giving him a um, a qualitative number there. He's actually defining things in a quantitative attribute also. And um, a really good paper is by David Burnett. Uh, he's at Criswell Theological Seminary in Texas, and he actually has a paper that I have that I'm, I can hand to Chris, and he can add it as a note for the podcast that talks about that specific topic and how it wasn't just quantitative what the children of Abraham would be. It's also a qualitative promise that we would reconstitute the divine council at the end. Yeah, so I was listening to Michael Heiser, uh, the audiobook of The Unseen Realm, and he talks about a lot uh, like Middleton talks about. So if people have heard our previous podcasts with uh, reclaiming biblical eschatology, the original world was meant to be uh, almost a relationship between man and God, where man is to be part of God's counsel, is to inform God, is to rule the world with God. And, and you see elements of that in the Genesis narrative where man is given dominion, to reclaim the earth. You know, not, not the entire earth was the Garden of Eden. God could have made the entire earth the Garden of Eden, but he, he, gave, he delegated power to man to form the earth. He said, uh, have dominion over it and subdue it. So there, there's always this relationship aspect, and that was the intent. And when we look at biblical eschatology, that's always the future promise in Revelation that God is with man, that God lives with man eternally. It's his cohabitation. That's our divine goal. Just look at the uh, the tabernacle scene that we have uh, in the wilderness wanderings. Um, I'm in the process of reading N.T. Wright's new book, The Day the Revolution Begun, and he, and he really harps on that the tabernacle was like a mini cosmos, basically, where it's like the tent was like the creation, and that inside it, God dwelt, and that his people were meant to come and have fellowship and be in his presence and so god is always in relationship with his creatures whether they're divine or whether they're human and there is genuine choices of give and take during this relationship that shows the relationality of god and to be honest the divine counsel only truly makes sense with an open theistic framework of give and take especially when it comes to intercessory prayer i mean look at look at the book of daniel for instance if god was just instantly just exhausted foreknowledge or just going to zap things, especially how he works with people. He's just going to snap his fingers and make something happen. The book of Daniel chapter 12 refutes that. Daniel is sitting there praying and praying and praying, and these prayers, he seems like they're not answering. Then all of a sudden, Gabriel shows up and says, hey, sorry it took so long. I was battling the prince of Persia, and I had to wait till Michael the archangel showed up to give me some relief before I could get here to you and let you know, hey, God is with you. God is on your side. God hears you. Sorry for the delay. Now I got to get back. And it's just like, dude, totally open theistic, relational God right there in Daniel 12. Yeah, I don't know. For me personally, reading the Unseen Realm and sort of being exposed to the Divine Council worldview, passages like that in Daniel just don't make sense within a normal, popular evangelical framework. You know, you read that and you're like, what the heck is going on here? You know, you just have no real concept of, first of all, you know, the Jewish mind, the style of writing, any of that stuff. You know, let alone that we're sort of having the curtain pulled back a little bit and seeing the spiritual realm and seeing how things go. And, you know, that that was part of the intent of the author in writing that passage. Exactly. I think a, a really a, a really interesting passage that 
we have here is in Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 through 9, talking about the divine council, and even talking about uh, the lesser Elohim and why there are lesser Elohim. And when you look at Deuteronomy 32, 8 through 9, it is pulling from Genesis 11 with the Tower of Babel event in, in which the people create a ziggurat, basically. And this is kind of what John Walton gets on in his book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, and what he believes that the Tower of Babel was described in ancient Near Eastern texts as basically a ziggurat in which the people will make this tower in order to bring God down to them. And then God goes ahead and disperses those people and those and those individuals, and Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9, specifically here, reading from the NRSV, which is similar to the ESV and uses the Dead Sea Scrolls, says, When the Most High apportioned the nations, when he divided humankind, he fixed the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the gods, or as ESV says, the number of the sons of God. The Lord's own portion was his people, Jacob his allotted share. So right there, you have the dispersion of the nation, and you have basically Moses saying, yeah, there are other Elohim, there are other divine council members, and these other nations have been handed over to these for Yahweh to use them as a means of judging and, and ruling over the creation as co-reagents, basically, because it's God's divine council. They all report back to the head haunch of the creator God. I find, I find that uh, really fascinating. And then you get to the themes in the Bible where it turns into... Yahweh versus the lesser gods, and then Israel versus the nations, and Israel continually abandoning worship of the one true God and following all these false gods mm -hmm. and these false idols. And when you read that, it's hard to see how anyone could think that Psalm 82 specifically is pertaining to just human beings. Even Psalm 89 says that these, these beings are in the heavens. There's never a text in the Old Testament that talks about human beings in heaven, in part of God's council in heaven, but you have the major prophets and minor prophets having these visions of these heavenly things, and they're watching these things play out, and it's just, it blows my mind. Yeah, it's very interesting. Like stuff. Paul says, uh, what uh, the pagans sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, you know? Yes. And, and then we have in Exodus 12, uh, 12, and, you know, God's uh, punishing the Egyptians for their refusal to let Israel go. And it reads this, For I'll pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I'll strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And so this is an interesting text. And some people say, well, they're just, the, they're just talking about stone idols that don't represent anything. That's not quite how it reads to me. It, it reads like this is like an attack on these divine beings that are actual divine beings that Egypt worships. And God continually uh, overpowers them uh, throughout the Bible and does battle with rebellious divine beings. Yeah, I think that Exodus in particular and the plagues um, is a really good example of this. You know, you'll hear how um, each of the plagues was designed to go after one of the Egyptian gods, um, but very rarely will you hear that those gods are actual beings you know you might hear that well they were just gods in the minds of the Egyptians much like you might hear well the Jews when they became apostate they were just worshiping stone idols and they were all just idiots and there was no there is no actual spiritual beings other than Yahweh and 
you know, that's a paradigm, I guess. But if you're going to be more honest with yourself, I think, and with the authorial intent of the scripture, that I mean, that really falls at the wayside here. That, yeah, it's really weird with like in the New Testament, especially they're fighting demons. They're just literally describing they're fighting demons. And what are demons? What are demons? Right. Jesus and Paul, I know who they are, but who are you? All right, we're stopping the tape real quick. I was trying to render this audio originally, and then I lost a lot of it by accidentally stopping the rendering early. So the rest of this podcast is going to be from a separate conversation in which we're kind of redoing this conversation. So the audio will sound a little bit different, but hopefully we have recreated the information that was lost. All right, so let's let's talk a little bit how this works with open theism, because in classical theology... God is immutable. He can't change. He lives in this uh, eternally simple realm in which there are no distinctions between any states of being, and uh, no one can affect him. He's immutable and impassable. But this Hebrew concept, the divine counsel, God is not any of these things. Instead, he is a sovereign. Uh, he sits and he rules. And he takes into account information. He takes into account people's thoughts, ideas, hopes, dreams. He's still sovereign. He still makes the decisions. In uh, 1 Kings 22, he hears people out and decides among what he's offered the best solution. And so all these things should be flagging for an open theist. These are open theist concepts. God responds to prayer. People could pray to God. Abraham could say, you know what, God, uh, if you find 50 righteous people, you probably shouldn't destroy the city. And then God could say, well, that's a good point. And then Abraham could say, you know, you know, 45 people, don't destroy the city. And God could say, yeah, that's, that's reasonable. And he could talk to them, and he could pray to God, and get God to admit that for 10 people, righteousness dictates that God save the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. This interaction is only available to open theists. It is not available to classical theism, where God is none of these things. And God is aloof, God is outside of time, God is immutable and impassable. It's, it's just a different God. Right, and, and for the record, Michael Heiser is absolutely not an open theist. With regard to the passage um, where God is brainstorming, trying to figure out do about King Ahab and how to get rid of him. <clears throat> Heiser has said that God knew who was going to suggest what they going to end up going with. So he doesn't he doesn't take the text completely at face value. He still is coming from an omniscient God that knows everything that will happen basis. And it seems to me that his issue, Chris uh, did a debate with him, but he did not want to. Um, I'm sure he's very busy. He said his response was basically that foreknowledge does not necessitate predestination. So I think that he thinks that the claim of the open theist is that God does not predetermine everything, therefore God cannot foreknow everything. Um, as if we 
link the two, and if one is true, then the other must be as well. But this is just simply not the case. Right. So it could be just the biblical case is just God doesn't know the future because you see things like God crowdsourcing information from the angels. And what's going on there? And what is going on if God knows what decision he's actually going to take? And do the angels, they treat God as if God already knows what answer he's going to take? Why don't they say, why don't you just skip all this, God? Why don't you skip this crowdsourcing and just make a decision and not waste all of our times um, just uh, offering you up solutions that you already know which one you want? It, it, doesn't, it doesn't fit the text. It doesn't make sense per the text where God knows the future in, in these interactions with his creatures. That's one, one of the things that the Heiser approach that has to struggle with. There's definitely a, a, a very much a, a give and take relationship uh, between Yahweh and his counsel and as well as his, his uh, corporeal uh, in the flesh agents uh, such as us, his creation and so forth. And the way he interacts with us and with his divine counsel and giving commands in order to do things. And like you said, pull knowledge together is an open theistic perspective is the only one that can legitimately answer this question or make sense of it. Whereas if it's foreknowledge, it's, it's just God playing mind games. Right. So in this sense, the divine counsel is an open theistic idea. It fits the Old Testament uh, theology. It fits uh, how they viewed the world, how they viewed the divine realm. And it really fits the open theist perspective because, you know, it's basically one and the same. God is sovereign and decides based on our petitions, petitions of angels, based on petitions even of his enemies. Uh, the pagan king Abimelech, he's able to persuade God saying, about righteousness, he says, God, it's, it would not be righteous for you to kill me. And God says, yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. It wouldn't be righteous. But if you continue and do this, then I am going to kill you. So there is this give and take relationship where God is making the sovereign decisions, but he still accepts input, legitimate input from everyone else on earth. People could give God advice and he does consider it he doesn't reject it out of hand he doesn't consider us menials and he values outside thought our guests today have been nathan patterson and joe sable i thank you all for coming on our program and i invite the audience to be with us next week as we explore part two in which we talk about michael heiser and his relationship to open theism if you have any questions or comments on this podcast, feel free to put that on the God is Open webpage or start a thread on the God is Open Facebook companion page. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.